Welcome everyone. I'm Tanya Hutchins. I'm a member of the Machinist Union and SAG-AFTRA. By day, I work at the Machinist Union as a communications representative. And my co-host this evening is Andrea Arenas. Thank you, Tanya. And uh, I am the communications and policy director at the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, um, LACLA. And thank you so much. I think that we're ready for something really, really special and uh, and exciting tonight. But before we dive into our interviews and our interviewees, uh, we'd like to give uh, a shout out to the Coalition of Labor Women, CLUE, who uh, they're celebrating their 74th anniversary today. So congratulations. And um, CLUE is celebrating with a performance of the play, We Were There, which tells the stories of women and labor leaders over the year over the years and it's a multimedia women's labor history project and guess what our own tanya hutchins plays the part of lucy parsons yes that's right lucy was born in texas but she was forced to move to chicago with her husband because interracial marriage was outlawed so she organized sewing workers and was a founding member of the wobblies the industrial workers of the world but her heartbreaking moment came during and after the Haymarket Square demonstration. So we don't want to give everything away, but listen to the play to hear Lucy Parsons' story and many more. The play was written by singer-songwriter Bev Grant. Now, We Were There is streaming at the same time as we're recording this live stream right now, but it will probably be available on Clue's social media page for you to replay at your convenience. So definitely check it out. Um, it's awesome, Andrea. Great story. Definitely will. Um, so let's go on to today's lineup, which is totally amazing. Um, it's Women's History Month. Um, and that is why today we are talking about the role that women play in the labor movement. Um, how many of them have achieved to break um, glass ceilings, how they continue to break glass ceilings and opening doors and forging uh, a better future, not only for, for other women, but for other women, but for everyone. Um, a coming in, or for a, a more inclusive future for all of us in, in the country. So an, an interesting uh, fact is that according to the Economic Policy Institute, women make up nearly half of union membership, yet they still, they still not necessarily represent um, half of union leadership. Nonetheless, there are women in leadership within our nation's most prominent uh, unions. And it's very exciting to see that every time every year there's more and more women in leaderships and within the unions. Tanya. That's right and we are very proud of the women in our leadership positions at the Machinist Union. Today we are joined by Dora Cervantes, Machinist Union General Secretary Treasurer, which is the second highest leadership position in the IAM, the International Association of Machinists, but I just call it the Machinist Union. Dora is the first woman in this position and the first Latina. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dora, and sharing your story with us. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me and good day to all the listeners. Now I know I, we wanna hear your union story, so we're gonna go back to the beginning. So let's go all the way back to your childhood. Where did you grow up and what was it like as a young girl in your hometown? Because I, I wanna hear about how you first heard about unions. 
So I grew up in Houston, Texas. Um, my parents um, um, are immigrants. Uh, my grandfather started off in the railroads. My grandfather was a proud member of uh, Brotherhood and Maintenance Way. And my father followed in his footsteps. So early on, I was uh, taken to the railroad yard when they used to have the employee picnics and the safety days. And I was really just, you know, overwhelmed. And, you know, I liked all those big locomotives and I was able to go into like the machine shops and see how they would operate on these cars. And I was fascinated by the big locomotives. And, uh, you know, I grew up with five brothers. So, you know, I was surrounded by brothers. Uh, my two younger sisters came later in life, but um, I was fascinated and I wanted to work for the railroad. So uh, when I was 18, um, you know, little, yeah, 18, 20 years old, I started to look at to Union Pacific and I applied at Union Pacific to get a, get a job there at the railroad yard. And, you know, under the recommendation of my father, uh, I believe at that point, they only had two women that actually worked on the yard. And uh, they were like engineers. The <laughs> well, I didn't get hired because they didn't hire women at that point. Not at, the, not at least at the machine shops. So I ended up going to apply at Southwest Airlines and I got hired there. Another big uh, jets and that fascinated me. But for my father, for my father, my grandfather, and every, everybody in my family is a union, you know, carries their union card proudly. So you were destined to be with the machinists then because we yes. were founded as a railroad union in 1888 and you were trying to get in there. In I was trying, world. yes. Right. So it was your destiny that you ended up with us. So yes, we're so glad to have you. Now I've heard you told, tell so many stories, inspiring stories, but one of them that I think shows just how hard you've worked over your career is, you know, you ended up becoming an organizer. So from the point where you started at Southwest Airlines, take us to that point where you were organizing because you said that at one point you were pregnant and you were still out there organizing. Correct, correct. So um, I became a machinist in 1989 and, um, you know, I was pregnant uh, in 1990, I had my son. And um, I got involved with the machinist union right away. We were under uh, contract negotiations and knowing a little bit about the unions, I knew that whatever decisions were being made or negotiated was gonna impact my livelihood. So I became involved and, you know, being very outspoken. And, and uh, so they kind of reached out to me and asked if I wanted to help. And I said, absolutely. Uh, and having knowledge of the airports, uh, I was tasked with getting the picketing permits or the soliciting permits so that we can stand out there. And we were trying to organize uh, some baggage handlers for a uh, major airline. So I would stand out there in the 110 degrees out in Houston with my little belly hanging out. And I would, you know, get everybody to sign cards and yes, trying to get them organized because I know that only through a collective bargaining agreement are you going to be treated fairly, especially for the, for as women, you know, since we're always underpaid and only through a union contract can wages be negotiated without a gender specific, you know, so it was very important for me. And yes, through both of my, both of my pregnancies, uh, I was out organizing and 
during the summer, I dragged my kids down there with me and uh, they helped out pass leaflets and talk the union talk because they, they've heard it for so long. That must have been inspiring to other women out there that you were trying to organize because they saw you, one, either when you were pregnant organizing, but bringing your kids. So what kind of reaction did you get? You know, um, I always say people were sympathetic, but people, it, it stopped people. First of all, it stopped them because they'd like, you know, they wanted to hear what I had to say. What pregnant women would be standing out there trying to organize people if I wasn't determined or if I didn't have something good to sell. And so it did get attention. And um, especially from, from the female workers and and, you know, I think uh, Andrea said it earlier that we have 50% uh, of women are union members and um, it, it got their attention. It really did get their attention. And uh, I had more women sign up than the male counterparts, but um, it was good. I think Andrea has a question for you. Yes. Well, it's, it's just such, such an important, it, it's such an important message, right? Everything that you did in that context, I mean, you showed that you could do it with kids. You showed other women and it's so inspiring because I have two little ones and, and, and it is a challenge to take them and even to be standing with a huge belly, you know? Um, but tell us a little bit about when you, when you started a, your job um, with the airlines, um, how, how, how did you get in there and what, 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 was, what is language pay? Because there was a specific thing that you were able to accomplish as part of that, that job. So we'd like you to explain to us what is language pay and what, why it is so important, especially for you as a Latina and for so many other bilingual people and workers. So I, I went to work for Southwest in 1989 and uh, we, would, because I'm bilingual and fluent in, uh, in Spanish, when we had Spanish callers that would call the, the reservation line, they would transfer them and some of us would volunteer to take those calls. And as I moved through the rank and file into a leadership position and had the opportunity to negotiate one of the Southwest agreements, my first goal was to get bilingual pay, to get uh, you know, uh, speaker pay. And, um, you know, I went to the company while we were in negotiations and basically said, we're providing a service for you. And, you know, it's a talent and it's a skill that we have and we need to be compensated for it. And it's negotiated in the contract that um, anyone who took or spoke Spanish gets a dollar differential. You get a dollar extra an hour for taking those Spanish. And it, it makes me proud because... Here again, we were able to get something, um, you know, in return for a service that we provide. And in the airline industry, um, those that are represented and have contracts, there is speaker pay and there is compensation for, for that skill and that talent. So it, it, it's a good move uh, in the right direction. But, what, you know, what I find amazing is that, that, that you were at least it didn't, sh it doesn't show that you were scared, right? You went ahead, you elevated your voice, you did it, you know, as, as, as LACLA, and since you sit in our board, you know that we have the Trabajadoras, Correct. Uh, which are uh, Trabajadoras Fellow and Equal Pay Day, and you've been there time, many times advocating for equal pay and our rights, talking about how do we negotiate a contract? How did you leave the fear behind? Because sometimes 
there's also that. How, how do I start op by opening my mouth? That, that's the simple first step. Correct. You know, um, you can't fix things if you don't tell somebody and things can't get fixed unless you make it known. And uh, while I was, while I was a worker at Southwest, you know, I could hear my, some of the people talk about what they wanted to see change or what they wanted to do. And believe it or not, I almost memorized that whole contract book. Uh, even to this day, I could say, turn to page 20. It's on the right hand side. Second paragraph states this, but um, I would make note of the changes that we wanted and um, probably one of the easiest companies that um, I had to deal with negotiations. And, you know, my thing is, if you're, if you're afraid to stand up, then you'll fall for anything. So I don't think it was so much fear. It was more of a challenge. You know, let's negotiate this or let's see, you know, how well we can do or let's ask for it. The worst they can tell us is no. And then we'll just keep hammering them down until we get it or, you know, come to an easy medium. And, and perhaps in, in that context, Dora, it's been so, the past year, I think it's been so taxing on, on so many women. Yes. Um, everyone, everyone. Women in particular, because of childcare, the motherhood penalty, um, and a series of challenges that we face. Um, what do you think, how do you think we move forward in order to avoid that what everybody is saying that we've we've been set back for sen for a century or for decades with what is happening with so many women quitting their jobs H how do we tackle that problem and do you think that perhaps um this is a perfect mo moment to to call uh, and invite more women into the union uh, into labor absolutely you know absolutely and you know women were put in a situation because we are caregivers first and foremost and the the difference that we need to see and i think as women we need to learn that as well that you know historically the men have always been the breadwinners but that's no longer the case in most cases women single parents are now the caregivers and it's really this COVID has really impacted women because they can't go to work. They have to stay home and either telework and you really can't telework because you're educating your kids. And so you're being pulled in a hundred directions. I think now would be a good time for women to join uh, labor organizations and negotiate uh, wage and job protection when incidents or events like this impact us. And I also think that you know, we need to learn from this is that as women, you know, we are head of, head of the households and sometimes that responsibility has got to be shift. You know, um, I could use you as an example or, or a person that's got um, two kids at home, you know, and the mother's got custody. She's a single parent, but why should she quit her job? If it's a shared custody, why isn't the demographics changing? You know, because it's expected of us and we do it, you know, and, and I think it needs to change. And, you know, um, we need to learn from this. And as we move forward as women, we need to embrace each other and help each other that, um, you know, start maybe like a community childcare to help those mothers that can't quit and, and that must work. Or one day you take care of my kids and help them with their homework and I'll take care of them the next day. You know, we're not going to get anywhere unless we join forces, help each other, and move forward. 
And last week, and Tanya, I promise that after this question, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you ask something. I'm just trying to pick Dora's brain a little bit. Um, last, I think, I believe it was last week, our latest episode of El Desio, the podcast, Lackless podcast specifically spoke about women in leadership. Um, and we had a great uh, lineup, just like today. And it, and it was amazing to hear, uh, how women can accomplish this and the, 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 the ranking in their own unions. Um, I'd like to know what would you tell women who are in labor um, about, about the struggle and the challenges and the benefits and, and of, 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 that, of, of ranking and growing in your union and also helping within the community because you're part of your union. So um, it's no easy task. I can tell you it's a tough road. Um, it's still a man's world. And uh, you just got to keep, keep moving ahead. I'm, you know, um, I did every single job pretty much and held every single position uh, within my union from the local to the district all the way to the top. So I've held many roles and each role was a little bit more challenging, but it I would say it prepared me. I never thought that I would be the general secretary treasurer and it was something I really wasn't looking at. But as you know, the more I volunteered, the more roles that I took on, the more I learned and the more experience that I got, which helped me to branch out. And uh, you know, um, I always said, if I can be down in the ditch and down in the, in the dirt organizing, uh, then I can be up at the top leading just the same. And, and um, I say these to my sisters is that don't give up. We do have a lot of brothers that do support sisters. And, you know, I think that in all my roles and everything that I've done, if I can serve as a mentor or an inspiration to other women, then I've accomplished a lot more than just being the general secretary treasurer. I want, I want women to look at me and say, if she can get there, so can I. And then I don't want you to stop there. I might be the number two but there's nothing that says you can't be the number one and run a union. And, you know, I just want to encourage all, all our workers, all the women, you know, we all have, we all make excuses. You know, I raised two kids and did homework, missed out on some stuff, but we can all say, I can't go to my union meeting because I have to cook dinner or I have to do this, you know, but you can juggle, you can juggle, you can do it. Um, you can go anywhere that you want to go. And, and it's important for us. It's very important for us. Um, I, you know, I heard uh, a woman's place is in her union. No, a woman's place is everywhere that choices are being made. That's the new motto, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I like it. Yes. Yeah, we need, we need that one on our fridge. Exactly. And, <laughs> and the other thing is, I'm proud to say that uh, within the machinist union, uh, we started actually uh, last year, we started to develop a women's mentorship program to promote women within our organization. We have 28% uh, of women members within our group, and we're really going out and trying to mentor them and bring them through the leadership positions because we do represent women and they, you know, our union has to represent the people and look like us. Our board has to look and our leaders have to look like the people that we represent. Dora, explain a little bit more about how that works, because what if there is a machinist union member who's a woman who is interested in that mentoring program? Like, how does the program work? 
So, um, so it's uh, Chris Wagner, our, our director from our school and uh, Carla Siegel, um, who's, over, who's overseeing the Women in Human Rights Department. We've put together um, a plan that uh, each territory, each district is gonna give us five women um, that we can start to mentor and start uh, putting them through the process of leadership. And uh, it's in the process now. I know that our executive council has already been notified by our international president that he would like a list of women uh, that are rank and file or either maybe they're presidents of their local lodge that we can start to, to mentor and coach and get them, you know, get them to where they need to be so they can take some of these leadership positions. As a woman, I think uh, within our organization, if you're interested, then you need to let your district uh, president know that this is something that you're interested in. And, you know, unfortunately the COVID has set us a little bit back, but uh, we're gonna move forward with it. Well, that is wonderful news. I know there are probably gonna be so many women that are interested um, and that's great. That's great news to hear. And um, I think that's something that will be wonderful, you know, for 2021 going into the next year. Yes. Um, you know, as you two just spoke about, there's a lot of women struggling out there with the pandemic and, and with their jobs. Some are looking for jobs. You know, it can take a toll. I mean, I'm employed. I, I was able to keep my job, you know, thank goodness, but it still even took a toll on me. You know, this is hard out here this past year. So Dora, you know, as moving up through the union, you know, you've been a shop, a general shop steward, general chair, you moved up to like special rep, Grand Lodge rep. I know that it's difficult and we don't always see, you know, the, the struggles behind the scenes, but how do you personally overcome challenges when you're having a hard day? How do you do it? You know, um, I meditate. Um, I just kind of have to sleep on it for a while. It's tough. I can tell you I've had my uh, breaking points and, um, you know, all through my career, I've had those challenges or, you know, had uh, someone really just, you know, bad moments, if you want to say, um, you know, I stop and I breathe and uh, I tell you what, what's really inspiring to me is that I'm a two-time um, breast cancer survivor. And I always say to myself, if I can beat cancer, then I could beat anything, bring it on. Right, this is nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, this is nothing. And, and you know what? And we have, to, we have to look at it that way, that this is nothing. This yeah. is nothing, but at the same time, do you think that, okay, th there is a huge need because we're facing all these things, self-care. You got to, you do your meditation, some yoga, I don't know, whatever, right. whatever helps. Sometimes, I don't know, Pinterest for 30 minutes or something <laughs> like that. But giving time to yourself is, has to be such a huge part of growing, right? Absolutely. And, you know, and I have to say this, you know, when you talk about, you know, the struggles that us as women are having during this COVID, I want you to keep in mind and reach out to one of the sisters or one of our friends you know one of our girlfriends and say you know what you've been home all day with the kids let me take the kids why don't you go get your nails done or take a breather because they won't ask they won't ask you know uh and, and we all need that we all need um just to just stop for a minute and just self-care and just regroup 
Okay, we only have about two to three minutes left, but um, I just wanted to ask you my last question. Andrea may have another one. Just how important is it should, for, how important is it for women to support other women? Because I know so many people are out here competing when you know it's so important for us to support each other. How important is that? It's very important. It's very important because we have to support and promote each other, you know, um, and stand behind each other so that we can get ahead. I think that when we tear each other down, it just limits us and it limits our abilities to move forward. So it's very important that we support each other, that we embrace each other, that we lift each other, especially now during these hard times, during this COVID, we have to be conscious of, um, of each other and grow together. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dora, for this wonderful time. Advice and pointers, perhaps, as to how to make it. I, I, I do just want to add it. this, that uh, for some of our listeners that are, are out there, I know that some of the central labor councils and some of the a a local AFL-CIOs are doing uh, mental health and helping. Uh, there's different events that are going around helping people with rent and, you know, homework with the kids. And I would say, look at your local central labor councils or AFL-CIO and see if they're putting on anything that might bring some relief to some of, of these single parents that are out there that are struggling or that have to quit their jobs and, uh, you know, stay home and, and teach the kids. Yep, go get help. It's hard to ask for help, but correct. Do it. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you Thank so you. much, Dora. Thank Have you. a wonderful evening. Yep, you too. Okay, that was Dora Cervantes. She is the Machinist Union General Secretary Treasurer. So we really appreciate her time. Um, we are going to take a little musical interlude in a moment. Um, so when we come back, our next guest is going to be author Mark Torres, who has written several books. His latest book just came out, um, which is called Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood. But first, we are going to hear a song called A Woman's Place. It's from the Machinist Union's band Union Nation. Um, the lyrics and music were by Michael Martinez, who also did lead guitar. Uh, the lead vocals are Lisa Hyde. And on keyboard is Martin Eddy, drums with Cameron Lewis, and the bass guitar is George Tyndall. So here's a woman play, woman's place, and we'll talk to Mark right after the song. Fear 
other two our future guaranteed to take a stand a union woman only you can depend i'll lift you up when you We're better for the union race Dedicated to get the job done A woman's place is in her union Fearless and productive Embracing yet strong I'm a union woman This is where I belong That is one of my favorites. And I know it's controversial to say like a woman's place is in her union because some people don't like it, but I like it. So, <laughs> Well, as Dora said, everywhere the decisions are made. Being right. Made, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so Tanya, we have an amazing um, guest uh, now. Um, we are joined by Mark Torres, author of the book, Long Island Migrant Labor Camps dust for blood and uh mark i'm sorry i might have said torres assuming uh <laughs> torres um whatever you prefer please tell me if i just change your life <laughs> all right and um congratulations so mark so much mark um you just your your book just launched um and uh, we'd love to know uh, more uh, about this book and and 
and what what made you write write it? Sure, sure. Thank, and thank you for having me, uh, Tanya and Dre. It's uh, exciting to be here. Uh, and, and just by way of introduction, I am a general counsel of Teamsters Local 810 here in New York City, or just, just outside of New York City in Long Island City. And I've been down- I'm sorry, Mark, I was supposed to say that, but I was so excited about uh, hearing uh, about your book that I didn't- That's okay. <laughs> and, and they do tie in, uh, Andrea, L luckily they tie in, because I've been in that role for about 12 years, but I've been a member of Teamsters for about 30 years. So I'm true and true labor. And, and, and that's what I look for in my stories. I'm also an author. I've written, this is now my fourth book, my first nonfiction historical book. And sure enough, it's about labor. It's about history. And it's, it's perfectly within my, within my interests and desire to have written this book. And I'm really excited about it. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, take, can you take us back perhaps? Uh, what was it like, um, and, and in particular, and based on your research, for uh, families, for migrant children, and yeah. speaking of the most vulnerable, right, and even women and children. Absolutely, and and, and really, the, the the true kind of shocker of this is that all of this occurred ninety miles outside of New York City, and you know you always hear of the migrant camps in the West Coast, uh, the Midwest, but never have you heard it from the East End of Long Island. In fact, this is the first book to cover that this story. And that's, and the, the more I learned of the story, the more my obligation grew to tell it. Um, heartbreak, mistreatment, chronic economic and physical exploitation, uh, human suffering. And it's another sad example where industry was more important than human life. And the, again, the more I researched and the, the information I found what was and is quite shocking. And, and it still remains today. Uh, farm workers still are not, are not not they have no access to the National Labor Relations Act, so they can't organize, they can't join a union. Although state laws have passed and things have gotten better, um, and it is a far cry from the, the time I, my, my book covers from 1943 to 2000 generally, but that mid mid century period was really at its at its peak and at its worst. Mark, in case there's somebody who is not in a union and not familiar with labor, or even somebody that doesn't know about these camps. Tell us like how and why they were set up. Yeah. Well, it, it started in World War II. There was a, a tremendous shortage of labor. Uh, men, were, men, men were enough to fight in the war and they needed, they needed laborers. Initially, the US government sponsored contracts with the islands of Jamaica and Barbados and workers were flown in to Long Island, worked at the camps for a short while. And right after that period, they also employed workers from Mexico and Puerto Rico. And then probably towards the later part of the 50s, that work exclusively was reserved for blacks, black, black men, women, and children from the South, U.S. states. So really the name, the name of the book alone, when people think migrants, they're thinking of you know, people crossing the borders. These are all U.S. citizens or workers that were uh, under work visas. So you know, the first, that's the first misconception I've already seen. And I'm glad to share that and explain that because that, then maybe that changes the perception a bit. Uh, of course, they had no access to any labor law protections. Uh, that being out of state, they had no citizenship rights, no voting rights. And really they were at the whim of these labor contractors called crew chiefs or crew leaders. They would go to these states, economically depressed states in Arkansas, Alabama, Carolinas, and they would recruit these workers and bring them back to Long Island. The minute those workers stepped on the bus, they were, they were obligated to pay for the ride both to Long Island and back. And every day thereafter, they're incurring debt from everything from fuel charges to rent to, to leasing space where they're living to food and, and, and alcohol at over, overblown prices. And all of that just kept a perpetual cycle of debt that was going on and on. At the same time, these camps 
over time grew to be really like slum-like conditions. Um, m- many people resorted to living in, in fact, I'll tell you in Bridgehampton in 1950, there was um, a fire. There was a family of, of four living in a, chick- in, a, in a chicken coop, if you can imagine. There was a fire, the workers, the parents were out in the field, a fire and two babies burned to death. And you know, at that point, the, the people in that community decided to start um, an organization which still lives, exists today called the Bridgehampton Community Child Care Center. And they, they take care of the, you know, they, they, they've helped the migrant workers then and today help um, youths as well as that they've been going since 1950. Um, you know, all of these conditions worsened over the years, chronic exploitation, uh, many, many fires. Again, the, a lot of these, these rundown facilities, some of them in Riverhead where there was no housing code. So people could really put up any structure, call it a house and live there but yet not insulated, no running, no running water, no heat. And sure enough, they would use these kerosene stoves and heaters for heat. And that led to uh, terrible fires and terrible situations uh, continuously. And, and really, as, I, as I, I realized when I finished the book, and, and now in my line of work, I represent teamsters, truckers, skilled maintenance, skilled maintenance workers, different, different mindsets, but never farm workers. But I could tell you now that you know, I'm glad to have given this voice to those forgotten brothers and sisters of labor, because although they were denied the opportunity to join unions, um, you know, it, it's a sad, a sad uh, thing they had to go through. And, and Mark, what do you think in, in that context that a, when, when perhaps there was, there was a change, what led to change under these conditions and perhaps what, what role did, did women um, and their kids play in, in, in changing things and t- well, changing that status quo? Yeah, I mean, I would love to tell you there was a humanitarian effort. There was marches like Cesar Chavez in California, but none of that happened on Long Island. The true change ultimately led to changes, stemmed from changes in agriculture, uses of machinery that led to less, less people needed. Uh, you know, those kind of changes eventually land, land values rising and increasing. All those changes really led to the ushering out of this period. But during that time, there were people who gave strong voice and advocacy to the workers. One of them, a woman, Helen Prince, who grew up and lived in South in the town of Southall for many years. She was a teacher, the only teacher and the only school at a camp, at a migrant camp for children in New York. Uh, she, she gave noble efforts. I think of Mary Chase Stone, a woman from New England who gave up a life of luxury to, to relocate to Riverhead, live in poverty, and help these these workers, and, and not only that, fight in court in court battles on their behalf to get money back that was owed to them. Um, and then on the flip side, I think of the, the people like Dilcia Trent, the 22 year old mother, who whose husband whose husband was a migrant worker out in the farm, and and she she you know there was a terrible fire, her three infant children they all they all perished. Um, Myrtle Lee Grant, another worker at a at a Bridgehampton camp in Jake and uh, the Jacobs camp in Bridgehampton. And she was mute and epileptic, and she again perished in a fire. All of these things and chronic exploitation continued. And, and just another example of the economic exploitation: one woman went into Riverhead, which is the, the, the largest city that far east, and complained that they were taking out Social Security from her paycheck, and she didn't even have a Social Security card. So this is the kind of chronic things that were that were going on at the time. Um, you know, again, the advocacy came from local reverends. Um, you know, Mary Chase Stone, I mentioned, and others. Uh, but ultimately, it was, you know, and I wish it was a better ending, a, a, a more heroic ending. But sadly, it was due to the agricultural changes that really led to the downfall of the camp. So it wasn't a particular movement. Then I guess that, um, that it would be important or uh, what, 
do you think that there are um, similarities to today to uh, you know guest worker programs yes. a, a lot of things that we we fight for right uh, yeah, for yes. when it comes to workers rights are sure. there sure well yes sadly the work farm workers now are ravished by covid um, you know they're still uh, exploited discriminated facing discrimination um, you know dealing with this, with similar treatments um, you know there hasn't been much change in that regard so so and ultimately you know it's a time told sad fact where people the industry value is more valuable than human life and that continued then that inarguably continues today uh, and that's why la labor and unions are so important because we intercept that at that juncture and fight for workers rights and fight for benefits and 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 call out um uh, horrible conditions. I, I know in my own line of work, you know, obviously we deal with contract grievances and discipline grievances, but there are other times where the heat breaks down in the warehouse and the workers are cold. And, you know, look, we speak to the employer and say, we have to get OSHA involved. Right away, they go out and they get a new heater and they fix it and make it conditions that are more uh, receptible for, for that. But without unions, you know, the workers don't have that voice and that power. Mark, just hearing all of these things, I still can't get over like the babies, like dying in the fires. Um, how does it make you feel knowing that sometimes these conditions still exist today? I mean, sometimes little things change so little. How does that make you feel? Well, I, you know, I spent 30 years in the labor movement. I'm driven unquestionably by mistreatment of workers. I, I, I will go as far as I can to fight on behalf of these workers. Uh, you know, I'm an attorney, but I don't see myself as an attorney. I've been called by my colleagues, a, a teamster with a law degree. And that's a, a, a mantra that I, that I hold true because I believe it and I live it. I, I've been in their shoes. And when I see that kind of uh, mistreatment or uh, you know, poor decision-making, things that lead to really to the detriment of the membership, I really get uh, riled up and I really do all I can within my, my power to remedy that as quick as possible. Now I met you through a children's book that you read that you wrote called uh, Good Guy Jake. If you have kids, you should order that book. It's a great book. Um, and I got it for my nieces, but it makes me think about how can we make sure that future generations learn about the labor movement? I mean, Good Guy Jake is a great example, but how else can we make sure um, that you know future workers learn? Sure. Even well, your book, your new book now is a great example. Yeah, in many ways, my new book is an example of, of how things go wrong and why they go wrong. And, and, and obviously the absence of unions was a large part of that. And, and, and you know, when you asked me earlier, how do I think I, I kind of felt like I was 60, 70 years too late. Although I wonder if I was in those shoes then, what, what, would, I could, what would I, could I have done to make a change? And I think, you know, the agricultural industry was just so colossal, so demanding that, you know, we don't know. I, I kind of fret to think that I couldn't have made any change, but I would have tried. And I think uh, that those few who did try really, you know, made great strides. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough to overcome the chronic conditions that were, were, were existed. And more importantly, the fact that it was never written about speaks to the power of the industry. Obviously, you know, I, I poured over 300 newspaper articles, read documentaries, and all along I was, I was dumbfounded that this was never written about. And, and really, I took it I took that to heart and I, I let it with a mantle. I said, I'm going to tell the story before the history is gone. And there's not many people who were part of this system that are still alive today to tell it. But um, I was fortunate enough to capture what I've captured. And, and you know, although I always feel it could have been more, but, you know, when you're chasing, uh, when you're chasing history like that, it's, 
you know, you'll always have that feeling. So, Mark, when you say, you say chasing history like that, uh, what were your sources? Because you said that not a lot has been written yeah. on, on this. So, yeah. well, how did you go about your research? Yeah, well, this is the first book on, on Proud to Say. It's the first book on this topic. I, you know, a lot, a lot of local art uh, and the libraries, uh, particularly in the East End and Suffolk County, Long Island, do a great job, have great archives. And there were old newspaper articles, some reporters, I think of more, more recently, Steve Wick as well as Les Payne, a Newsday reporter who spent one week undercover as a migrant worker in a camp in Riverhead. And his, his expose was absolutely cr critical to my research. Rare documentaries, again, you know, it almost surprised me that the, the growers and farmers would have allowed these films to be shot. Maybe they realized it would have been more flattering, but luckily that's been preserved. Like uh, uh, Certainly Harvest of Shame, Edward R. Murrow's 1960 uh, CBS documentary was one I relied on as well. And also, you know, just good old fashioned interviews and, and reaching out and talking to people from all spectrums, from the farmers to government agents to even the Department of Labor. I reached out and spoke to agents there to the extent they could have helped. And of course, family members of those who were migrant workers and also those who's advocated for migrant workers. So it was really, a, 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 and I'm quite proud of the level of research and it required that. And, and no, stone, no stone was left unturned. And the topic, it was too important to, to not do otherwise. But it's also great that you bring um, that history and your legal knowledge. Perhaps that would, um, this is the question. How do you think we advance, right? Because you've said that this is the past, what you researched, then there are still similarities with yeah. what we live today. As a lawyer, how do we change these things quick, maybe efficiently yeah. um, and, and efficiently and for everyone? Sure. Well, well, certainly the first step is awareness. And, and you know, the idea of burying history or hiding it or ignoring it is the worst thing to do. You know, if we can accept what happened and then we can certainly learn and build on that. You know, I wrote this book from the mindset of an investigative journalist. I, I lay out the facts uh, through all the diligent research. Of course, I, I have my own, my own summation towards the end, but, but I, want the, I challenge the reader to read this, take what they made from it. Uh, I, 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 made, I, I reached out to all sides of, of the spectrum, regard, you know, from pro-migrant, even farmers, uh, government officials. So I really covered a wide, a wide um, array of all the parties involved. And, and that's the first and most important step, acknowledging it. This did happen. This can happen again. In many ways, it is in different circumstances, perhaps. But mistreatment's mistreatment. And that's what drove me. And that's what drives me every day on behalf of the members I serve and anyone else I could help is, you know, helping workers, helping people and their families. This seems like it would be a good book to have in high schools and colleges so students can learn about this. Is this something that you're aiming for? Absolutely. I, I reached out to my alma maters at NYU and Fordham. Uh, I've also had several have several events scheduled at Stony Brook, Adelphi, some local universities, particularly on Long Island, and 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 that was and still is a target audience. Uh, my previous work, which is fiction, uh, obviously it has entertainment value. Although I always strive to teach. In fact, my first book, A Stirring in the North Fork, introduced the camps. That was the first I've learned of them, and I always knew I wanted to come back to it. So yes, I'm certainly looking to reach the academia, uh, even the bar associations. Um, uh, you know, uh, groups of, of a wide spectrum of groups from minority affairs to to all kinds of groups who who really discuss this because it's a book about labor, it's a book about human rights, it's a book about immigration, and you know, and it's all true and it's important to kind of document it and preserve it. When and did it's you amazing that there's no history. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Tanya. It's just so amazing that there's no history about this, right? None. 
Yeah. And that's the biggest, the biggest, uh, the motivator for me. Uh, and certainly I hope that that appeals to others, whether they're history buffs or have a keen interest in any of those topics that are discussed in the book or general history to, to realize that this happened for, for better part of half a century, right outside New York city. And it's never been discussed or, or told. And, you know, that, that, I, that did not go, that was not lost upon me, the, the importance of telling the story and getting it right. When did you know that you had to, to write another book about this? Because you yeah. said you touched upon it in yeah. a previous- I, I, I added, in, in the first book, which is a fictional crime novel, I added, I added one of the characters actually lived in one of the camps. And of course it's fiction being what it was. And at the time I only knew very little and I said, I'm gonna come back to it. I think as I grew deeper into my knowledge of what actually happened, uh, it became clear to me that I had an obligation, but whether it's spiritual, whether it's professional or personal, I felt the deep obligation to tell the story, to get it right, and to share it. Um, you know, it's important. You know, I have a presentation prepared. I have many, many lectures already set up, and 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 I'm eager to kind of lecture and discuss this history. It, it, it almost seems like I forget that I'm talking about a book because I'm really more keen on the history and sharing it. And that's truly the important part for me on this, because this was and is a labor of love. It's a passion I do. Um, I love my job. I love my career. And I love to write. And I love to share history, uh, certainly, you know, labor related. If someone's in New York, are there any like ruins or remnants, you know, are we going to hear about Mark Torres giving tours of where the migrant camps used to be? <laughs> you know, I, I, there are there are I, I know I can tell you in the book, there are two pictures of, of remnant camps, but but. The, the remnants are gone. Uh, and again, almost the history was gone. So you're right. I, I kept envisioning, envisioning these camps, how they stood, where they stood. Um, you know, even if it's an empty lot now, saying it, just imagining in my mind what that once was and the, and the, and the human suffering that occurred there and the, the conditions that were allowed to go on. So in my mind, they're there. And, and, and perhaps by, by reading this book and embracing the history, maybe that'll, that'll bring that up in the conscious mind as well for the readers. So you mentioned you have some upcoming uh, events. Uh, where where are you next? If uh, someone would like to meet you sure. or, or attend one of your events, are they online? Because they are all, all but one. I have one in July. That's my first uh, physical one. I have about twenty events that are all so far virtual, and, and and I'm finding the way. Whether you know, obviously with COVID, what it is, and we have to all adapt. And and you know, this format is is great and it'll be the next best thing. The key is to get it out there. And on this Saturday, in fact, I have an event at 5 p.m. And um, I could share that on social media as well. It's, it's sponsored by the Oyster Ponds Historical Society, which is on the North Fork, um, all the way out in Orient, about 90 miles from New York City and as furthest east as you can get. And it's one of the first places that I started in my research. And, uh, and then I have several throughout. I have one on April 9th hosted by the Shelter Island Library. Uh, sorry, the, um, the Shelter Island Library. 13 other libraries are joining that event alone along with another historical society in Southampton. So the book is getting a lot of interest and, and I hope for the right reasons and expect for the right reasons because uh, you know these areas are steeped in history, steeped in history, yet this part is, is never been told. So I'm glad to present that. So you're making labor journalism and labor narration um, cool again you know a lot of people think you know hadn't heard about it but now you know young people are learning about unions and you're writing about it so thank you for like bringing these stories to life uh, there just seems like there's so many people that you touched upon with heartbreaking stories um, is there another character that you haven't mentioned so far that you wanted to mention no I, I think of um, 
uh, Reverend Arthur Bryan, he was a reverend in Greenport. He was a very, very, uh, initially he was a very big advocate for the, for the growers in general. He would lobby for them, um, you know, through state, state uh, venues, to try to get better conditions. But then he really became a strong advocate for the workers and that drew great ire from the farmers and growers and, and, and those, the naysayers who said, oh, you know, he's just a do-gooder. And he received death threats. And this is a, a reverend from, um, from Greenport who relocated to Chicago with his family. And I remember when I first learned of him, I said, I got to find this guy. He is a true inspiration and still is to this day. Unfortunately, he passed at a very young age of 51, but I was happy to say that I connected with his family. He has four daughters and they've all been tremendously helpful. And we, we, you know, next week I, I hope to meet one of them, at, you know, on, on, on travels and they're very nice people and they were eager to share their, their father's history on this. Um, you know, it, it's a proud legacy and that kind of, you know, whether it was union or not, if you're helping people and fighting for people, that's, that's where you want to be. And that's, that to me, draws my attention and my inspiration. And Andre, have any other questions? Not a question. Maybe if you can give me and all of the viewers uh, the information of where to get the book. Um, yeah. Well, the book, the book launched on Monday. It's available in History Press. If they're uh, Arcadia Publishers, as well as Amazon, and you could be ordered through Barnes and Noble. And uh, you know, it's, it's my real first foray with the with the publisher. So I'm glad to kind of just shift all of that to them. Uh, my other work was self-published, and that was a lot. Was almost double the work. Um, so I'm glad to kind of uh, research it, write it. And then share it and let the publishers deal with that but they have been very good and accommodating and you know pretty much can be ordered anywhere and it's been uh receiving a lot of traction i'm also networking out west coast uh reached out to some local uh, and you know but both in the industry politicians as well as labor leaders um dolores Huerta, one of them uh who i did speak to as well for this book and and she actually does remember she did come to the East Coast. She came to, to Long Island and she got a little, a, a, a short glimpse, but enough of a glimpse to see the conditions. And obviously you, you just don't synonymize it with that. You say oh, Long Island, you know, you just don't think of, and this is all potato farms. If you think that what they are now with the vast vineyards and, and beautiful plush countryside, they used to be all potato farms and, and, and countless bushels of agriculture grown year after year after year. They were number one in the, in the country at the time. So that required a lot of labor. And whenever, whenever labor is required, you always have to watch for the treatment of those workers. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your book. Uh, good luck with sales. I'm sure this story really touches people. So we appreciate you uh, taking the time with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to meet you all. Have a great day. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. And, and that is uh, the book. Let's just give the title one more time. Tanya, Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood by Mark Torres. That's Thank right. So now, before we leave, we would like to remind you all of an event that is taking place tomorrow night. That's Thursday at 7 p.m. It's called Real People, Real Relief, the American Rescue Plan in Action with AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka and Secretary-Treasurer Liz Schuler. So that'll be live on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So check it out Thursday at 7 p.m. And thank you all for joining us for the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly live stream. Our producers are Chris Garlock and Evan Papp, who is also engineer and editor. And don't forget to join us for the next uh, live stream in a couple of weeks at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and stay tuned for Labor History. I'm Rick Smith. 
And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1989. That was the day the Exxon Valdez oil tanker spilled nearly 11 million gallons of oil in Prince William Sound off the coast of Alaska. The ship ran aground and collided with Bly's Reef. Most people remember the captain was held primarily responsible for the spill. By his own admission, he had passed out after a night of heavy drinking. But a number of factors also contributed to the environmental disaster. The National Transportation Safety Board issued its final report over a year later. In it, the board concluded that fatigue, reduced crews, and problems with regulations and procedures regarding Exxon's drug and alcohol program all contributed to the spill. Union officials reported great concern regarding chronic fatigue of its members on merchant ships, reduced crews due to greater automation, and reduced scheduled ship maintenance. Crew members on the Exxon Valdez routinely worked 20 hours or more a day during routine cargo handling operations. The NTSB also concluded that vessel traffic service under the U.S. Coast Guard failed to properly track the Exxon Valdez. They had the ability to select a higher radar scale, but didn't. The Coast Guard suffered from reduced crews burdened with increased job duties as well. They also found that remote communication sites were inoperable on the night of the spill. The equipment was old, deteriorating from harsh weather conditions. Requested funding for new equipment had not been forthcoming. The Alieska Pipeline Company, for its part, failed to have an oil spill barge loaded and ready to go. Major cleanup efforts were conducted during the spring and summer months through 1992. But marine life and the environments were devastated. Long-term efforts at monitoring and cleanup continue today. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. You better listen, my brother, because if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they will until we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free. 